Sunday, June 13th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, the poem father composed for my birthday is too nice to keep to myself. Since Pym writes his verses only in German, Margaret volunteered to translate it into Dutch. See for yourself whether Margaret hasn't done herself proud. It begins with the usual summary of the year's events and then continues. As youngest among us, but small no more, your life can be trying, but we have the chore of becoming your teachers a terrible bore. We've got experience, take it from me. We've done this all before, you see. We know the ropes, we know the same. Since time immemorial, always the same. One's own shortcomings are nothing but fluff, but everyone else's are heaviest stuff. Fault finding comes easy when this is our plight, but it's hard for your parents, try as they might, to treat you with fairness and kindness as well. Nitpicking's a habit that's hard to dispel. Men you're living with old folks, all you can do is put up with their nagging. It's hard, but it's true. The pill may be bitter, but down it must go. For it's meant to keep the peace, you know. The many months here have not been in vain, since wasting time goes against your brain. You read and study nearly all the day, determined to chase the boredom away. The more difficult question, much harder to bear, is what on earth do I have to wear? I've got no more panties, my clothes are too tight, my shirt is a loincloth, I'm really a sight. To put on my shoes, I must off my toes. Oh dear, I'm plagued with so many woes. Margaret had trouble getting the part about food to rhyme, so I'm leaving it out. But aside from that, don't you think it's a good poem? For the rest, I've been thoroughly spoiled and have received a number of lovely presents, including a big book on my favorite subject, Greek and Roman mythology. Nor can I explain about the lack of candy Everyone had dipped into their last reserves. As to Benjamin of the Annex, I got more than I deserve. Yours, Anne. Tuesday, June 15, 1943. Dearest Kitty, heaps of things have happened, but I often think I'm boring you with my dreary chit-chat and that you'd just as soon have fewer letters. So I'll keep the news brief. Mr. Foskajor wasn't operated on for his ulcer after all. Once the doctors had him on the operating table and opened him up, they saw that he had cancer. He was in such an advanced stage that an operation was pointless, so they stitched him up again, kept him in the hospital for three weeks, fed him well and sent him back home. But they made an unforgivable error. They told the poor man exactly what was in store for him. He can't work anymore, and he's just sitting at home, surrounded by his eight children, brooding about his approaching death. I feel very sorry for him and hate not being able to go out. Otherwise, I'd visit him as often as I could and help take his mind off matters. Now the good man can no longer let us know what's being said and done in the warehouse, which is a disaster for us. Mr. Foskertrol was our greatest source of help and support when it came to safety measures. We miss him very much. Next month, it's our turn to hand over our radio to the authorities. Mr. Clayman has a small set hidden in his home that he's giving us to replace our beautiful cabinet radio. It's a pity we have to turn in our big Phillips, but when you're in hiding, you can't afford to bring the authorities down on your heads. Of course, we'll put the baby radio upstairs. 
What's a clandestine radio when there are already clandestine Jews and clandestine money? All over the country, people are trying to get hold of an old radio that they can hand over instead of their moral booster. It's true, as the reports from outside grow worse and worse, the radio, with its wondrous voice, helps us not to lose heart and to keep telling ourselves, "Cheer up, keep your spirits high. Things are bound to get better." Yours, Anne. Sunday, July eleventh, nineteen forty-three. Dear Kitty, to get back to the subject of child rearing. Let me tell you that I'm doing my best to be helpful, friendly, and kind, and to do all I can to keep the rain of abuse down to a light drizzle. It's not easy trying to behave like a model child with people you can't stand, especially when you don't mean a word of it. But I can see that little hypocrisy gets me a lot further than my own method of saying exactly what I think. Of course, I often forget my role and find it impossible to curb my anger when they're unfair. So that they spend the next month saying the most impertinent girl in the world. Don't you think I'm to be pitied sometimes? It's a good thing I'm not the grouchy type, because then I might become sour and bad-tempered. I can usually see the humorous side of their scoldings, but it's easier when somebody else is being raked over the coals. Further, I've decided to drop the shorthand first, so that I have more time for my other subjects, and second, because of my eyes. That's a sad story. I've become very nearsighted and should have had glasses ages ago, but as you know, people in hiding can't. Yesterday, all anyone here could talk about was Anne's eyes, because Mother had suggested I go to the ophthalmologist with Mrs. Clayman. Just hearing this made my knees weak, since it's no small matter. Going outside, just think of it. Walking down the street, I can't imagine it. I was petrified at first, and then glad. But it's not as simple as all that. The various authorities who had to approve such a step were unable to reach a quick decision. They first had to carefully weigh all the difficulties and risks. Though Meep was ready to set off immediately with me in the tub. In the meantime, I've taken my grey coat from the closet, but it was so small it looked as if it might have belonged to my little sister. We lowered the hem, but I still couldn't button it. I'm really curious to see what they decide. Only I don't think they'll ever work out a plan, because the British have landed in Sicily and father's all set for a quick finish. Bab's been giving Margaret and me a lot of office work to do. It makes us both feel important, and it's a big help to her. Anyone can file letters and make entries in the sales book, but we do it with remarkable accuracy. Meep has so much to carry; she looks like a pack mule. She goes forth nearly every day to scrounge up vegetables and then bicycles back with her purchases in large shopping bags. She's also the one who brings five library books with her every Saturday. We long for Saturdays because that means books. We're like a bunch of little kids with a present. Ordinary people don't know how much books can mean to someone who's cooped up. Our only diversions are reading, studying, and listening to the radio. Yours and. Tuesday, July thirteenth, nineteen forty-three. The best little table. Yesterday afternoon, father gave me permission to ask Mister Dusso whether he would please be so good as to allow me to use the table in our room two afternoons a week, from four to five thirty. I already sit there every day from two thirty to four while Dusso takes a nap, but the rest of the time, the room and the table are off limits to me. It's impossible to study next door in the afternoon because there's too much going on. 
Besides, father sometimes likes to sit at a desk during the afternoon, so it seemed like a reasonable request, and I asked do so very politely. What do you think the learned gentleman's reply was? No, just plain no. I was incensed and wasn't about to let myself be put off like that. I asked him the reason for his no, but this didn't get me anywhere. The gist of his reply was, I have to study too, you know. And if I can't do that in the afternoons, I won't be able to fit it in at all. I have to finish the task I've set for myself. Otherwise, there's no point in starting. Besides, you aren't serious about your studies. Mythology. What kind of work is that? Reading and knitting don't count either. I use that table, and I'm not going to give it up. I replied, Mr. Duso, I do take my work seriously. I can't study next door in the afternoons. And I would appreciate it if you would reconsider my request. Having said these words, the insulted Anne turned around and pretended the learned doctor wasn't there. I was seething with rage and felt that Duso had been incredibly rude and that I'd been very polite. That evening, when I managed to get hold of him, I told him what had happened and we discussed what my next step should be, because I had no intention of giving up and preferred to deal with the matter myself. Pim gave me a rough idea of how to approach Duso, but cautioned me to wait until the next day, since I was in such a flap. I ignored this last piece of advice and waited for Duso after the dishes had been done. Pim was sitting next door, and that had a calming effect. I began, Mister Duso, you seem to believe further discussion of the matter is pointless, but I beg you to reconsider. Duso gave me his most charming smile and said, "I'm always prepared to discuss the matter." Even though it's already been settled, I went on talking despite Duso's repeated interruptions. When you first came here, I said we agreed that the room was to be shared by the two of us. If we were to divide it fairly, you'd have the entire morning and I'd have the entire afternoon. I'm not asking for that much, but two afternoons a week does seem reasonable to me. Duso leapt out of his chair as if he'd sat on a pin. You have no business talking about your rights to the room. Where am I supposed to go? Maybe I should ask Mr. Van Dam to build me a cubby hole in the attic. You're not the only one who can't find a quiet place to work. You're always looking for a fight. If your sister Margaret, who has more right to work space than you do, had come to me with the same request, I'd never even have thought of refusing. But you, and once again he brought up the business about the mythology and the knitting, and once again Anne was insulted. However. I show no sign of it and let Duso finish. But no, it's impossible to talk to you. You are shamefully self-centered. No one else matters as long as you get your way. I've never seen such a child. But after all is said and done, I'll be obliged to let you have your way, since I don't want people saying later on that Anne Frank failed her exams because Mister Duso refused to relinquish his table. He went on and on until there was such a deluge of words I could hardly keep up. For one fleeting moment, I thought him and his lies. I'll smack his ugly mug so hard he'll go bouncing off the wall. But the next moment, I thought, calm down. He's not worth getting so upset about. At long last, Mister Duso's fury was spent, and he left the room with an expression of triumph mixed with wrath, his coat pockets bulging with food. I went running over to father and recounted the entire story, or at least those parts he hadn't been able to follow himself. Pim decided to talk to Duso that very same evening, and they spoke for more than half an hour. They first discussed whether Anne should be allowed to use the table, yes or no. 
Father said that he and Dusso had dealt with the subject once before, at which time he professed to agree with Dusso because he didn't want to contradict the elder in front of the younger, but that even then he hadn't thought it was fair. Dusso felt I had no right to talk as if he were an intruder laying claim to everything in sight, but Father protested strongly since he himself had heard me say nothing of the kind, and so the conversation went back and forth. With father defending my selfishness and my busy work, and do so grumbling the whole time, do so finally had to give in, and I was granted the opportunity to work without interruption two afternoons a week. Do so looked very sullen, didn't speak to me for two days, and make sure he occupied the table from five to five thirty. All very childish, of course. Anyone who's so petty and pedantic at the age of fifty-four was born that way, and is never going to change. Friday, July sixteenth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, there's been another break-in, but this time a real one. Peter went down to the warehouse this morning at seven, as usual, and noticed at once that both the warehouse door and the street door were open. It immediately reported this to Pim, who went to the private office, tuned the radio to a German station, and locked the door. Then they both went back upstairs. In such cases, our orders are not to wash ourselves or run any water, to be quiet, to be dressed at eight, and not to go to the bathroom. And as usual, we followed these to the letter. We were all glad we'd slept so well and hadn't heard anything. For a while, we were indignant because no one from the office came upstairs the entire morning. Mister Clayman left us on tenterhooks until eleven thirty. He told that the burglars had forced the outside door and the warehouse door with a crowbar, but when they didn't find anything worth stealing, they tried their luck on the next door. They stole two cash boxes containing forty guilders, blank checkbooks, and worst of all, coupons for three hundred and thirty pounds of sugar. Our entire allotment. It won't be easy to wangle new ones. Mister Kubler thinks this burglar belongs to the same gang as the one who made an unsuccessful attempt six weeks ago to open all three doors. The burglary caused another stir, but the annex seems to thrive on excitement. Naturally, we were glad the cash register and the typewriters had been safely tucked away in our clothes closet. Yours, Anne. P.S. Landing in Sicily. Another step closer to the. Monday, July nineteenth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, North Amsterdam was very heavily bombed on Sunday. There was apparently a great deal of destruction. Entire streets are in ruins, and it will take a while for them to dig out all the bodies. So far, there have been two hundred dead and countless wounded. The hospitals are bursting at the seams. We've been told of children searching forlornly in the smouldering ruins for their dead parents. It still makes me shiver to think of the dull, distant drone that signified the approaching destruction. Friday, July twenty-third, nineteen forty-three. Beb is currently able to get hold of notebooks, especially journals and ledgers, useful for my bookkeeping, sister. Other kinds are for sale as well, but don't ask what they're like or how long they'll last. At the moment, they're all labeled "no coupons needed," like everything else you can purchase without ration stamps. They're totally worthless. They consist of twelve sheets of grey paper with narrow lines that slant across the page. Margaret is thinking about taking a course in calligraphy. I've advised her to go ahead and do it. Mother won't let me because of my eyes, but I think that's silly. Whether I do that or something else, it all comes down to the same thing.
since you've never been through a war, Kitty, and since you know very little about life in hiding. In spite of my letters, let me tell you, just for fun, what we each want to do first when we are able to go outside again. Margaret and Mister Van Dan wish, above all else, to have a hot bath filled to the brim, which they can lie in for more than half an hour. Missus Van Dan would like a cake. Dussel can think of nothing but seeing his Charlotte, and Mother is dying for a cup of real coffee. Father would like to visit Mister Foskeshaw. Peter would go downtown, and as for me, I'd be so overjoyed I won't know where to begin. Most of all, I long to have a home of our own, to be able to move around freely and have someone help me with my homework at last. In other words, to go back to school. Bab has offered to get us some fruit at so-called bargain prices: grapes two point five guilders a pound, gooseberries seventy cents a pound, one peach fifty cents, melons seventy-five cents a pound. No wonder the papers write every evening in big fat letters: keep prices down. Monday, July twenty-sixth, nineteen forty-three. Dear Kitty, yesterday was a very tumultuous day, and we're still all wound up. Actually, you may wonder if there's ever a day that passes without some kind of excitement. The first warning siren went off in the morning while we were at breakfast, but we paid no attention because it only meant that the planes were crossing the coast. I had a terrible headache, so I lay down for an hour after breakfast and then went to the office at around two. At two thirty, Margaret had finished her office work and was just gathering her things together when the sirens began wailing again. So she and I trooped back upstairs. None too soon, it seems, for less than five minutes later, the guns were booming so loudly that we went and stood in the hall. The house shook and the bombs kept falling. I was clutching my escape bag more because I wanted to have something to hold on to than because I wanted to run away. I know we can't leave here, but if we had to, being seen on the streets would be just as dangerous as getting caught in an air raid. After half an hour, the drone of engines faded and the house began to hum with activity again. Peter emerged from his lookout post in the front attic. Dusso remained in the front office. Mrs. Van Dee felt safest in the private office. Mr. Van Dan had been watching from the loft, and those of us on the landing spread out to watch the columns of smoke rising from the harbor. Before long, the smell of fire was everywhere, and outside it looked as if the city were enveloped in a thick fog. A big fire like that is not a pleasant sight, but fortunately for us, it was all over, and we went back to our various chores. Just as we were starting dinner, another air raid alarm. The food was good, but I lost my appetite the moment I heard the siren. Nothing happened, however, and 45 minutes later, the all clear was sounded. After the dishes had been washed, another air raid warning: gunfire and swarms of planes. Oh gosh! Twice in a day, we thought. That's twice in one day, we thought. That's twice too many. Little good that did us, because once again the bombs rained down. This time on the others of the city, according to British reports, Schiphol Airport was bombed. The planes dived and climbed. The air was abuzz with the drone of engines. It was very scary, and the whole time I kept thinking, "Here it comes. This is it." I can assure you that when I went to bed at nine, my legs were still shaking. At the stroke of midnight, I woke up again. More planes. Dusso was undressing, but I took no notice and leapt up. Wide awake, the sound of the first shot. 
I stayed in father's bed until one, in my own bed until one thirty, and was back in father's bed at two. But the planes kept on coming. At last, they stopped firing, and I was able to go back home again. I finally fell asleep at half past two, seven o'clock. I awoke with a start and sat up in bed. Mr. Van Dan was with father. My first thought was burglars. Everything I heard Mr. Van Dan say, and I thought everything had been stolen. But no, this time it was wonderful news, the best we've had in months, maybe even since the war began. Mussolini has resigned, and the King of Italy has taken over the government. We jumped for joy after the awful events of yesterday. Finally, something good happens and brings us hope. Hope for an end to the war. Hope for peace. Mr. Kugler stopped by and told us that the Fokker Aircraft Factory had been hit hard. Meanwhile, there was another air raid alarm this morning, with planes flying over and another warning siren. I've headed up to here with alarms. I've hardly slept, and the last thing I want to do is work. But now the suspense about Italy and the hope that the war will be over by the end of the year are keeping us awake. Yours, Anne. Thursday, July twenty ninth, nineteen forty three. Dearest Kitty, Mrs. Van Dan, Dusso, and I were doing the dishes, and I was extremely quiet. This is very unusual for me, and they were sure to notice. So, in order to avoid any questions, I quickly racked my brains for a neutral topic. I thought the book Henry from across the street might fit the bill, but I couldn't have been more wrong. If Mrs. Van Dan doesn't jump down my throat, Mr. Dusso does. It all boiled down to this: Mr. Dusso had recommended the book to Margaret and me as an example of excellent writing. We thought it was anything but that. The little boy had been portrayed well, but as for the rest, the less said the better. I mentioned something to that effect while we were doing the dishes, and Dusso launched into a veritable tirade. How can you possibly understand the psychology of a man? That of a child isn't so difficult, but you are far too young to read a book like that. Even a twenty-year-old man would be unable to comprehend it. Mrs. Fandy and Dusso continued their harangue. You know way too much about things you're not supposed to. You've been brought up all wrong. Later on, when you're older, you won't be able to enjoy anything anymore. You'll say, "Oh, I read that twenty years ago in some book." You'd better hurry if you want to catch a husband or fall in love, since everything is bound to be a disappointment to you. You already know all there is to know in theory, but in practice, that's another story. Can you imagine how I felt? I astonished myself by calmly replying, "You may think I haven't been raised properly, but many people would disagree. They apparently believe that good child rearing includes trying to pit me against my parents, since that's all they ever do." And not telling a girl my age about grown-up subjects is fine. We can all see what happens when people are raised that way. At that moment, I could have slapped them both for poking fun at me. I was beside myself with rage, and if I only knew how much longer we had to put up with each other's company, I'd start counting the days. Mrs. Van Dan's a fine one to talk. She sets an example, all right. A bad one. She's known to be exceedingly pushy. Egotistical, cunning, calculating, and perpetually dissatisfied. Add to that vanity and coquettishness, and there's no question about it. She's a thoroughly despicable person. I could write an entire book about Madame Van Dan, and who knows? Maybe someday I will. 
Anyone can put on a charming exterior when they want to. Mrs. Van D is friendly to strangers, especially men. So it's easy to take a mistake when you first get to know her. Mother thinks that Mrs. Van D is too stupid for words. Margaret thinks she's too unimportant. Pim thinks she's too ugly. And after long observation, I've come to the conclusion that she's all three of the above, and lots more besides. She has so many bad traits. Why should I single out just one of them? Yours and P.S. Will the reader please take into consideration that this story was written before the writer's fury had cooled? Clandestine. Clandestine. Adjective. Kept secret or done secretively, especially because illicit. Deluge. Deluge. Now, a severe flood. Pedantic. Pedantic. Adjective. Excessively concerned with minor details or rules, overscrupulous.